Hello and welcome to Neurospicy. I'm your host, Dr. Karen McLennan, a research psychologist specialising in neurodiversity. On this podcast, I'll be chatting with fantastic guests about their life and experiences of being neurodivergent or their work in the realm of neurodiversity. I'm very excited to get our teeth stuck into the topic of today, chewing quietly, of course. Um, Joining us today is Dr. Jane Gregory. Welcome, Jane. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And thank you for being quiet with your chewing as you get your teeth stuck into the topic. (laughs) I will do my absolute best. I'm going to be very aware of sounds. (laughs) whilst we're recording this podcast Um, but yeah I'm super looking forward to chatting you today um, chatting to you today Um, could you please just start by introducing yourself and you know as part of that your link to neurodiversity as well yeah so I'm yeah well Jane Gregory Um, I'm sure you've already said my name (laughs) I've already forgotten what you said at the start I am a clinical psychologist I am researching misophonia and I have just written a book on misophonia and I have misophonia. So I am very much in the realm of what we call me-search, of doing research that is directly benefiting my own personal needs whilst also trying to provide some kind of service to other people. And if you think about the link to neurodiversity, I guess that kind of depends on how you define neurodiversity. So I think of it as very much at least neurodiversity diversity adjacent. Um, misophonia can, does have an impact on sort of cognitive processing, learning, memory, that kind of thing. And so a lot of people consider that to be under the umbrella of neurodiversity, uh, but it's not necessarily within the same category of neurodevelopmental conditions like autism or ADHD, which are sort of start early on and continue across the lifespan. Misophonia can come and go for some people. Some people um, acquire it later in life after certain events or illnesses. So it's not quite the same as those other conditions or um, sort of ways of being. I don't really like the term condition, but I can't think of a better explanation at the moment. Um, Yeah, so I consider it a, a state of neurodiversity um but maybe not an identity of neurodiversity in the same way that some of those other conditions are if that Mm. makes sense no it absolutely (laughs) makes sense and I think that's really interesting because I mean my background is sensory research but in autistic people so that is very much part of like you know their being and who they are so yeah I find it it's really fascinating to me to see sensory differences that perhaps are more in the realm of what we think of the wider umbrella of neurodiversity related to, you know, like anxiety and depression and things like that, which aren't kind of a lifelong part of who a person is. So yeah, that's really um, interesting. I'm really fascinated to learn out more, learn more about this as we go on. And I think for me, it's sort of become more part of my identity because it's now what I'm researching, what I'm Mm. writing about. I read about it all the time. I talk to a lot of people with misophonia. And so it's probably become more part of my identity because of the work that I'm doing. Whereas before it was, it was part of me, but not necessarily a defining feature Mm. of me, but it's, it's becoming that because of my, the amount of time I've invested in misophonia. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's it's misophonia is your life in many different realms. Like it's yeah, it must be interesting to kind of. Do you find it hard to kind of have it in all areas of your life, or are you kind of 
it's become something that's so much of interest to you because of that as you said your research <laughs> that you yeah. like love it <laughs> definitely the latter I love it I'm so fascinated by it I love talking to people about it I love meeting other researchers who are researching it I'm just so curious that if someone just lets me talk about it or talks to me about it for hours on end I like I went to a research meeting that was just misophonia researchers and it was like three of the best days of my life I was like in my element just hearing all this work that's going on it's so exciting everything is new and interesting and helps to make sense of a problem that has been there my whole life so yeah Mm. I'm I'm very much in the honeymoon phase of enjoying the being having misophonia sort of like immersed in my life or me being immersed in misophonia mm-hmm. no, that's brilliant um so for obviously misophonia might not be known to a lot of people so it'd be really nice to for from your perspective to understand more about what misophonia actually is we are still trying to work that out it's very newly identified and recognized and only in the last few years like there's been more research on misophonia in the last two years than there ever had been combined before so it's very early days for understanding misophonia but the current understanding is that it it's an intense reaction to specific sounds and not just a general over responsivity to noise but um, specific kinds of sounds cause a, a disproportionate reaction and that can be an emotional reaction a physical sort of fight or flight kind of reaction or a behavioral reaction so um, urges or aggression or um, needing to escape kind of behavior and that um, the it's not based on the volume of the sound although the louder the sound is the more likely it is to be a problem but this, the volume isn't the, the volume itself isn't the problem it's the nature of the sound the most common sounds are eating sounds um, mouth, mouth nose and throat kind of sounds like um, heavy breathing or repetitive coughing or throat clearing or sniffing and then other sort of repetitive environmental sounds and that might be things like keyboards pens clicking clocks ticking dogs barking and and some of those are things that people would be bothered like dogs barking you're not supposed to ignore a dog bark that's part of the mechanism of barking is to draw attention but for people with misophonia it would be a more intense reaction to that and maybe not able to tune it out whereas people without misophonia might be able to just kind of ignore the dog barking after a little while whereas someone with misophonia finds it really hard to tune these sounds out which is where it sort of feeds into what I was saying before about the impact on learning and memory that if part of your attention is tuned into this unimportant sound then you've lost a bit of the part of uh, saying you've lost part of your mind is not the right way of describing that (laughs) some of your resources in your mind are now on this sound and so it takes away from what you would rather be tuning into Mm, that's really interesting so is it kind of similar to I guess like threat scanning stuff that you get with kind of associated with anxiety that because certain sounds are distressing to you that you end up then having like almost that scanning response of ready for it and becoming anxious in anticipation of it is that kind of how it works that can definitely be 
part of the picture. It's not the case for everyone, but some people, especially with more severe misophonia, because it impacts their life so much, they are more um, on guard and waiting for these sounds to happen or sort of checking to make sure there aren't going to be any sounds that might cause a problem. And that does look a bit more like that threat response. There are other people who say, actually, when the sound is there, they tune into it and can't ignore it and it causes this intense reaction. But as soon as the sound is gone, that's it, it's over, they can get on with whatever else they were doing. So for some people, the problem of misophonia affects them in between sounds and for other people, it's literally only when the sound is there. And that's where I'm at with my misophonia now is that I I no longer sort of go into a situation looking for sounds or listening for sounds, looking for sounds is the wrong <laughs> phrase. Although looking, although actually I'm, I'm sort of looking for clues. So I used to mm. like walk into a train carriage and check to see whether anyone had a packet of crisps on their lap or something like that. And then I would not sit anywhere near that person if I saw that. Whereas now I go about my life and if I hear one of these sounds and it stops me from doing what I want to be doing, then I will take action to help with that but I won't live my life in anticipation of sounds anymore in the way that I used to Mm, that makes a lot of sense so actually talking about kind of your experiences what are the sort of things that you've found either in the past or now to be kind of more challenging for me it's well eating sounds have always been a problem for me and one of the things that like the sort of family meal was a really important thing in my house growing up. So we had breakfast and dinner together every day. That was just a normal part of our family life. And it was where we caught up with each other and found out what was going on. It, It was a really important part of our bonding as a family. And so when there were really loud eating sounds that would, again, sort of pull me away from that experience and disconnect me from my family that then caused this kind of conflict of like I was in this situation where the intention of the situation is to connect and I'm feeling disconnected. And so that caused a lot more stress than just the sound itself. Like I I don't like that sound, but if I hear it in isolation, it's like, oh, that's disgusting. I don't like it. But if I hear it in a situation where it stops me from the purpose of that situation, it creates this feeling of conflict for me. And so eating and and social situations was a really big one for me and then the other one was whenever I was trying to learn or concentrate and so school was a problem with people clicking pens especially I don't I don't know how old you are but when I was in school it was really popular these 10 pens it was like 10 colors on a pen and people would be like (laughs) constantly clicking through it like they needed to have this particular part of their notes written in purple for some reason and so that that sound, that click, click, click of those pens clicking, and every time I would hear it, it would pull me out of what I was trying to focus on or concentrate on. And mm. it, I ended up having a, a, like one of the old school Walkmans. I mean, it wasn't old school at the time. It was a very modern Walkman at the time, <laughs> but um, like an actual cassette tape player in the pocket of my school uniform with the earbuds like fed up through my jumper my like um sweater and hiding underneath my hair so I'd have just Mm. light music playing so that I didn't have to hear these sounds and could actually focus and I think like I'm sure I wasn't the only person who was 
sneakily listening to music during class, but I'm pretty sure I was the only person sneakily listening to music because I cared so much about school that (laughs) I wanted to learn. I wanted to concentrate. I needed to do that. So it wasn't an escape from the learning. It was actually an attempt. <laughs> Very different my reasons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure my playlist was pretty different as well from the people who were using music to escape from their learning. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, listening to music as a way to be extra nerdy is like, yeah. great. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think, I feel like that was some of my peak nerd moments. <laughs> I love that. I'm also really glad that you defined what Walkman was for anybody who's <laughs> young and doesn't realize that we didn't just have streaming services when we were younger you had to uh, and you had to create your playlist on this tape and and it was a very carefully curated playlist because it had to be something that had a consistent enough sound that it would block out things but wasn't too distracting and so Mm. I had this sort of like um folksy singer songwriter kind of mix that was nice and gentle it was all music that I knew and liked and was familiar and so it wasn't too distracting and so I would create these very carefully thought out playlists uh, that I would listen to and there'd just be this whirring of the cassette player in my pocket while I (laughs) did my maths. That's amazing I mean it's great that you managed to find your own solution for something that was quite challenging so that you were able to concentrate on your work because actually you know I think traditionally it has been seen if you see a child listening to music in class it's because they're trying to not do their work um so I think it's great that you managed to find those sorts of solutions to be able to overcome those challenges in school yeah and that's a really good point of like what it looks like from the outside and I think that that's the case with a lot of tools that people use to help with concentration so things like um, draw like doodling on a sketch pad or something as a way of actually helping you to listen and pay attention and yet to somebody who doesn't understand that it looks like you are deliberately not listening deliberately not paying attention and just doing something else and actually it's like no these are things that help people mm, to engage yeah, in the learning definitely and yeah have, they have been traditionally seen as issues and problem behavior rather than something beneficial so I think that's yeah a really good point to make and I feel like there's becoming a bit more of an understanding of that but I still feel like I encounter quite a lot of stories of misunderstanding about what what yeah. that looks like and what's helpful so it's, I think there's a long way to go there yeah in the school environment <laughs> yeah yeah um definitely I think the thing that I've found quite interesting that I've learned so far from talking about this is that I always thought of kind of my understanding of misophonia was mostly to do with those eating sounds. Um, I didn't realise that it also included things like that, those clicking sounds and ticking sounds um, or things like dogs barking and stuff like that. I always thought of it as, yeah, I don't know if it's just because the people I know who I now think probably have misophonia. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's been around like, oh God, stop! Like I can't, I can hear you chewing, type thing, rather than yeah, the clicking sounds. So that's yeah, yeah interesting for me. I th- and I think that that that's one of those things, sort of how um, autism became defined by what people thought it was and therefore that's all they looked for um misophonia became defined by eating sounds that got described as 
a sensitivity to eating sounds as the main characteristic. And so when research was being done and they were looking for people with misophonia, it would be like, do you, do you have a problem with eating sounds? Do you get angry in response to these sounds? And so some of the early recruitment might have changed the nature of who came in, participated in the research because it described it in those limited terms. And so the research was then more likely to be recruiting people who were specifically bothered by eating sounds, who's had a specific anger response. Whereas when we look at general population samples, we see that there's a whole range of sounds that can be a problem and the nature of the emotional reaction can be really different. And it can be different across people, but it can also be different within one person across sounds. So somebody might get an anger reaction to like slurping or throat clearing or something, but they might get a disgust reaction to sniffing and then they might get a panic reaction to the sound of like cutlery on a plate or um, chewing gum or something. So it the, the nature of the reaction can be different and the like within one person and it can be different across people as well and what we found in the research is that it kind of clusters together that people who are bothered by one eating sound are more likely to be bothered by other kinds of eating sounds people who are bothered by sniffing are more likely also to be bothered by sort of throat clearing and kind of mouth and nose sounds and people who are bothered by environmental sounds they're more likely to sort of have a cluster of environmental sounds and that's sort of a statistical pattern rather than a hard and fast rule about it and some people are bothered by lots of different sounds but that's sort of the the cluster of sounds and there seems to be maybe a slightly different pattern depending on the type of sound so with eating sounds that often gets like a really immediate intense fight or flight kind of reaction anger or panic or distress or really strong disgust whereas a ticking sound or a tapping or a pen clicking it might be an irritation to begin with that builds so where eating it might spike immediately and then just stay high until the sound goes away with other sounds it might be a slow build and it's like the more you can hear that sound the more intense your reaction gets so it the trajectory of the reaction can be different as well which is really tricky for research so mm. Um, a colleague of mine in um, Germany, he's trying to develop this test for um, for avoidance of misophonia sounds, and he's got all of these different sounds. But what he noticed is that people can withstand those sort of environmental sounds for much longer than they can withstand eating sounds. So you can't group those together in a test very easily because someone might be able to last 10 seconds with a clock ticking, but they'll like switch off eating sounds within half a second. And so... Mm you can't directly compare those sounds. Wow, interesting. That's that's it's interesting to hear kind of the the challenges in research and they're kind of similar to general sensory research that I do as well and that they the you know the thing we always say is they are different across people across contexts across everything so it can <laughs> be very difficult but um I think that's really interesting that you do get these like different types of responses depending on the different types of sounds which is quite yeah fascinating that you do get that vast array do we do you know if that's because like why <laughs> are there different mechanisms <laughs> why tell me why are there different it's mechanisms <laughs> I <Yeah>. just yeah. <laughs> and that why question is literally the source of like so much research at the moment so okay. one of the theories is that 
um, that one of the mechanisms is a pairing of meaning to sounds. And so um, the brain, we, we know that there's sort of, you can see different patterns in the brain in people with misophonia compared to people without misophonia and differences in response to trigger sounds compared to just generally aversive sounds. And so in some cases, the brain treats trigger sounds as like an alarm kind of sound, like sounds that are intended not to be ignored. So alarms, sirens, certain animal screeches that are not meant to be ignored because they're signs of distress or um, invasion (laughs) or something. Um, The brain treats them, treats things like eating and clock sticking as a, a potential threat sound and it might not be an immediate threat but it might be a potential threat so you sort of stay on guard and tuned into those sounds as if it could turn into a threat and therefore it feels like a threat because your brain is treating it as though it is um so part of it is about how the brain processes it but we also know that the context is really important and that there was one one of my favorite studies which was done at Concordia University in Montreal um that they masked the sounds with just like a general noise sound it wasn't white noise but it was something like that I think and slowly made the masking sound quieter and quieter so that the the aversive sounds or the trigger sounds would emerge from the sound mist and they compared people with and without misophonia to see at what point did they hear the trigger sound through the noise and what they found and this is so fascinating to me is that there was no difference the point for for people who were knew they were listening out for a sound there was no difference at the in the point at which they detected the sound through other noise so it wasn't a difference in how well you can detect these sounds which means that the fact that people with misophonia often hear these sounds when other people don't, it's probably more to do with their attention. So they're, they're on guard for sounds. But if the other person, if a person without misophonia was also on guard for sounds, they would hear them at the same time. And potentially a difference in not tuning out sounds. So a person without misophonia might not even notice that they've heard the clock because their brain's ignored it so quickly, whereas the person with misophonia keeps hearing the clock as if they're hearing it for the first time and therefore they're hearing it when the other person isn't. Um, But then the other thing is about the context and meaning of the sound. So the other thing that they tested was um, the emotional reaction to sounds and there was a more intense emotional reaction to trigger sounds from people with misophonia, which is what they expected. But that emotional reaction only hit at the point that they identified what the sound was. So when they didn't know what the sound was, they didn't get any kind of physiological reaction as if it was a threat response. But once they recognized it as chewing, for example, that's when the threat response came up in their body and they measured that with, um, with, both I think it was a rating and a physiological reaction so the like objective data of the what the body's reaction matched sort of the perception um so yeah so to me that study is fascinating because it means that people with misophonia aren't better at detecting these sounds but they might be more alert to the sounds and they certainly I'm sure can't tune them out as easily but also that it matters what the sound is 
And for some people that can be dependent on who the person is. So if they hear a sound, my friend um, thought she heard her husband eating, got really, really angry, turned around and realised that it was her baby and the reaction disappeared. And so we know (laughs) it's not just the acoustic properties of eating sounds because the reaction changes depending on the context. And that's been tested in research as well where they pair mismatched video with the sound. So it looks like the sound is coming from, so for example, um, like lip smacking kind of noises that might pair that with like splashing in a puddle because they sound kind of similar and the reaction is less intense when you think it's something inoffensive compared to when you think it's something offensive and I find that fascinating that is so fascinating I'm just my brain is going 100 miles an hour now I'm like oh my god I've got so many questions um (laughs) which yeah I mean the research is being done I'm sure that all these will be answered but um I think that is it is part of it then to do with like conditioning so like you um you know if you live with somebody for example and I'm just thinking of something that's not misophonia, like related to misophonia, but they do something that they always leave their towel on the banister. And the first few times you're like, oh, silly person left their towel on the banister. And then over time, you're literally like, I will kill you if you leave this towel on the banister. Yeah. Is it kind of a similar conditioned response with misophonia, do you think, where it's like you hear that's like an eating sound? And because you have to hear it from that person, do you, does it like extend then to be annoyed at that person doing it? Hence why you're more likely to react if they're doing it. I don't, I don't know if that's relevant. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a really great comparison. And a, a, yeah, the, the idea of a, a pet peeve that keeps happening is like being poked or prodded over and over and over again. It's like eventually you're going to snap. And so for some people it's instant. It's like they hear that sound from that one person and it's an immediate reaction. And then anytime they hear that person afterwards, which again is partly a conditioned thing. And, and my friend is a really good example of that because she said that her husband, the first time she heard her husband eating, she got that immediate reaction so there's something about it but when she thought it was her husband but it turned out to be her kid it went away and so it's not just about his particular eating sounds there's some kind of meaning attached to that and so for some people it's instant and therefore it just and then it just stays there and for others it's that slow build and that there's a a theory called social exchange theory which is this idea that for us to all get along there are certain rules about how we should behave and one of those rules is about reciprocation that like we should equally try to make each other comfortable in the world and if you're being really good and putting your towel away and not leaving it out and disrupting the like visual of other people's home experience and not ruining the wood by putting a wet towel over the wood you're following the rules and they aren't. And so part of that building response is like they're not following the rules. They are not reciprocating what I am doing and therefore that becomes a different kind of threat response. It's like, well, if there's there's sort of an extrapolation there, it's like if they cannot follow this rule, then maybe they won't respect other rules or maybe they won't reciprocate other needs. And so the more that happens, the more that becomes a realistic sense of threat that that could 
and particularly in terms of a violation so that the violation is where the anger comes from and then it feels like well I have to put a stop to this so then the response becomes about preventing it's not really about the towel it's preventing future violations in other ways that could be more harmful so in the same way that road rage isn't necessarily about this one moment like this someone cut them off and actually it turned out to be okay and and it was it it wasn't as dangerous as it could have been but the person gets angry to a level of what could have happened and feels like they feels compelled that they have to let this person know that they've done something wrong because there's this compulsion to prevent a future disaster and therefore they need to know that they've broken the rules so that they don't do it again mm. and so there's so many complex elements to this and that's just a theory that hasn't been researched in the context of misophonia it's something that I'm just really really interested in because I'm was trying to make sense of the explosive level of anger that some people have with misophonia. And that was the closest comparison I could find of this idea of like broken social reciprocation rules. And it also helped me to understand why some people cause a stronger reaction than others. And that can be if there's um, other conflict, then, then there could be a stronger reaction because it becomes representative of this other conflict. Or it can be the other way around where you have a closer relationship, you depend on them more, there's a, a higher need for the reciprocation to happen and for your needs to be met by that person. So a, a child reacting more strongly to the parent that they're closest to would be a good example of that, that they need those rules not to be broken. And so when it feels like they are broken or when they are broken because this parent is creating a sound that disrupts their ability to enjoy themselves or relax or connect with that parent, that's a bigger violation from that parent. Whereas sometimes it's the opposite and it's a, a family member where there's existing conflict and the sound kind of attaches itself to conflict, which would go back to what you were asking at the start about threat mm. and how um, sensory information can be attached to a threat. And therefore, when we experience that sensory information again in the future, we respond as though it's a threat. So if a sound gets attached to conflict, then hearing that sound can feel like conflict, even though the sound isn't actually related to the conflict. Yeah, that is so, yeah, really, really fascinating to think about. I mean, the complexities around that. And I didn't even think, I mean, obviously I was aware that eating sounds involve other people, but that kind of (laughs) response over time and how it can affect relationships. Obviously you mentioned at the beginning with kind of having those family relationships dinners and things like that um how does that feed into so it sounds like for you it was there from quite a young age but you mentioned at the start that people can kind of develop this at different stages is is it a case that some people will have it kind of lifelong like or have those experiences lifelong whereas other people will just have kind of short spouts of it or like how does that kind of work that I, I think so. The, again, this is something that hasn't been researched on a, on a mass level, but from my clinical experience of working with patients with misophonia and supervising therapists who are working with people with misophonia, that some people have come because they had an ear infection and a blocked ear for a while. And then when the infection cleared, suddenly they were tuning into these sounds that they had never tuned into before and getting this misophonia type response 
and that then persisting beyond like you'd expect a, a natural kind of bounce back effect of after you've had a blocked ear you will be more sensitive to sounds but for some reason their brain attached meaning to that and like oh no what if I never can ignore these sounds ever again and suddenly be, being concerned about the fact that people are making these sounds and that then becoming a problem and so all of this meaning gets attached to those sounds and therefore the problem persists and looks like misophonia and so that's what I would consider like an acquired misophonia um, in the same way that people with um, depression and anxiety can acquire temporary states that might look like ADHD for example and it doesn't mean that they have ADHD but they will experience symptoms that are really similar to that so, so they go through a state of inattention or problems concentrating or trouble with working memory. And in that, we know, we know that ADHD is a, a lifelong condition, so we wouldn't consider it to be that, but we don't have that kind of categorization for misophonia yet. So if, if we think of that misophonia as being the phenomenon and some people can experience it temporarily, some people can experience it like in response to a traumatic event and the, the sounds might be really quite specific to the traumatic event, but more than you would expect within a diagnosis of PTSD, for example, they then the sound the sounds sort of start to generalize to other sounds or the reaction doesn't match the experience of the trauma. And so they might be experiencing both PTSD and a temporary sort of state of misophonia. And even when the PTSD is resolved, the misophonia stays. And so that it needs to be helped separately. Um, but then there are people who have general sensitivity to these kinds of sounds and maybe are more likely to – one of my theories is that the brain is more likely to attach meaning to sound, so it's more sort of predisposed to do that and therefore you're more likely to develop misophonia rather than it being something that was destined to exist in that person. So I've worked with people who have said they've always been a bit sensitive to sounds and certain sounds seem to bother them more than other people, but it was never really a problem in their life until maybe a particular period of conflict or change, transition. So someone who was unhappy in their work and hadn't really thought about the fact that they needed a career change and weren't happy with the workplace and there was some conflict in the workplace and so started to get really, really agitated by the sounds of typing and their colleagues like making lots of sounds in the office. So it looked like misophonia. And actually, once we worked on the misophonia together, then we looked underneath it and thought, oh, actually, I'm not very satisfied with my work. And maybe that's why the misophonia sort of emerged at this time. But we also needed to resolve the problem of not being in a job that you want to be in. Um, so that's another example of where the predisposition is there, but it emerges in the right conditions. Um, and for some people, there, there's, there are some patterns in people who have had it most of their life. There are some patterns in terms of the age that it develops. So sort of a period around eight or nine and maybe around 11, 12, 13, there's sort of these two patches where people say it often say it was one of those two time points and developmentally, those are really key time points for um, independence and sort of connecting more to friends and disconnecting a little bit from your parents so that you can form friendships and be more independent. So they're actually really important developmental phases. So it would make sense that if there were going to be changes, it might happen at that point. And one study which I found fascinating, which was not to do with misophonia, but um, for 
girls in particular around the age of 12, I think it was, they develop more of an aversion to their parents' voices and more of a, a positive feeling towards their friends' voices. And if you think about that as a developmental thing, that really makes sense because that's the point where you're supposed to be developing new social relationships and leading towards independence and being able to move out of the family home and find a new community so it makes sense that you would be drawn more to the voices of your friends and a little bit less to your parents and if that happens in the context of someone who's predisposed to misophonia they might experience their parents voice as a trigger and actually that's a really natural process to go through to sort of find your parents a little bit grating and be a bit annoyed by everything that they do as you go into your teenage years. And that's a really healthy developmental thing. But if that then gets attached to these misophonia type sounds and misophonia type reactions, it becomes a family problem and a relationship problem with your parent rather than it being this natural, healthy process of sort of connecting more socially and away from the family unit. I've just talked for so long. I'm sorry. I don't even remember no. what the question was. No, that was, I was in. I was so, yeah, everything you said is so, so interesting. And actually, like, now I've started thinking a lot more, um, have a lot more questions around sort of intervention and support. But I, before we start talking about that, I think it's a really good time to bring up about your book. <laughs> um, because <laughs> sure. honestly, a lot of that is about how to support yourself or others with misophonia so um obviously it sounds like misophonia has been your life for a long time uh, personally and professionally but what kind of led you to developing and writing and publishing this book the my interest in this really started from a very personal selfish perspective was that I was just I discovered what misophonia was and as soon as I read about it I was like oh okay yep that's what I've got. All right. That makes sense. Yep. That everything falling into place. Now I understand the last 25 years of my life, um, even longer. Um, and so once I understood that it was misophonia, first of all, I felt a lot of relief of actually understanding what it was. And secondly, then I started to look into the research on misophonia and there was just a little bit at the time that was sort of suggesting that that might be possible to do some treatment and CBT was one of the things that got thrown out there and I was working as a clinical psychologist at the time working specifically with people with OCD who have really severe OCD that have been through multiple courses of treatment and medication and, and are still really unwell and so that was my main specialism at that time and I just started thinking about some of the ideas that I was working with those people about like what are some of the things that are just part of the way that their brain works and then what are the parts that we can help with therapy what are the bits that can change and also how do past experiences influence the development of this problem or the intensity of this problem and so that, that was sort of the, the framework and so I started just experimenting on myself and doing some of the things that I might do I was thinking what would I do if someone was telling me this was a problem and just experimenting on myself so one of the things we do with OCD is what we call opposite action so you if you know that something feels harmful or like a violation or a threat but rationally you know that it's a very a very low risk <laughs> threat um what you do is you do the opposite of what your urge is to do because we know that our behavior can reinforce a sense of threat that the more we act as though something is dangerous the more it continues to feel dangerous so I just started doing things like when my husband was 
eating loudly, instead of glaring at him, I would gaze adoringly at him. And um, if my kids were eating loudly, I would kind of just lean in a little bit and move closer and just do the opposite. And in the moment, it didn't necessarily relieve any pressure. But what I noticed was that doing this over time, repeatedly, was starting to make a difference. I was starting to be less annoyed by those sounds from some of these small actions. And so then I started to do it a bit more deliberately. So I would get my kids to munch on Doritos in my ear and practice doing silly things like imagining that it was um, a cartoon character making these crazy sounds or thinking about like what would what would the situation be where someone would need to eat that loudly? Like what's their backstory? That would mean that, that that's just how they eat. Or if you were a director in a film and you wanted someone to eat loudly, what would, what's the character trait that you're trying to get across with showing this person eating loudly? And I think that's a, that's a thing that often gets done, especially with the, the, the like manic pixie dream girl era of, um, romantic comedies where it was like the way they would show how she doesn't follow the rules is that she would eat with her hands and she would eat with her mouth open because she just didn't care about what anyone else thought and so it became a way a, a very lazy way of showing character but when I started to do that myself in planned deliberate ways again I started to notice that the sounds were bothering me less and it wasn't that in the moment this was a helpful coping strategy it was more that by doing these exercises my relationship with those sounds started to change so it started just with that <laughs> and then um because it was working and because it followed really similar patterns that are uh, researched and understood within the context of CBT we started to offer it at, at we had a couple of patients coming through the clinic that I was working at in the time at the time in the NHS who had misophonia and so we worked with these patients to sort of develop these kinds of experiments for them and see how and sort of adapt some of the strategies that we knew worked for other conditions and they also found it helpful and so we started to make that a regular thing that we offered in that service and started tracking the results to make sure that in general it was more helpful than it was not helpful because um yeah we don't want treatment to not be working as a rule (laughs) um but once I started to do that, there were a couple of things that I realized that didn't exist that were really important. So one was a way of measuring this. We had a couple of questionnaires that were designed to measure misophonia, but the people that I was working with, I think, oh, the things that are changing for me in therapy aren't necessarily captured by these questionnaires. So then I teamed up with someone who had just started working on designing a questionnaire and she was a statistician specializing in psychometrics, which um, for people listening is basically an attempt to measure an unobservable characteristic. So you use questionnaires and you use st- statistics to try and capture traits that you can't observe directly. And so I had, um, so Celia Vitaracu, who's at King's College, she had started this project but didn't have any clinical input and I was working with patients with misophonia. So we joined forces and worked together to create this questionnaire with multiple rounds of feedback and analysis from uh, it was thousands of people with misophonia in the end over four waves of data collection plus feedback from my patients and 
my sort of observations of what was changing in therapy. So we created this questionnaire that showed the complexity of misophonia. So it wasn't just, oh, I have an emotional reaction to sounds. It was also, I feel bad about myself when I'm reacting this way. I feel conflicted. And I sometimes I feel like you shouldn't be making that sound. And other times I feel like I shouldn't be reacting that way to you making a perfectly normal human sound. And then there was also a sense of feeling trapped or helpless if you couldn't get away from the sounds, which was a little bit different from just the emotional response. It was sort of putting a an interpretation or a fear based on that, that if I get stuck with this sound, I might panic or explode. And that looked a bit more like some of the things we know from anxiety disorders, where if it feels like something's going to happen, then our reaction is much more intense to that thing, even if that thing doesn't happen. So that questionnaire and doing all that research around that questionnaire helped me to see that misophonia was much more complex than certainly than I'd realized and um, the measurement of it, it allowed us to capture these five key areas of misophonia that hadn't been captured by other questionnaires. And so doing that, it got me really excited about research, which I hadn't done. It had been over 10 years since I'd done research in my clinical psychology doctorate. And I realized that if I was going to work on this further, I needed to be part of the research process, especially because I was seeing all these little things change. It's like, oh, is that just this person that's changing that way? Or is that a key mechanism in misophonia that could change for other people too? And so I started to develop just sort of a theory about what some of the things could be that might change in misophonia. And that then formed a research proposal, which is the work that I'm doing now, which is funded by the Wellcome Trust. And they basically said, here's three years worth of money, <laughs> see what you can find, <laughs> which is to me has been really exciting because I started with these theories and actually some of the stuff that I thought was important isn't <laughs> important. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm, it's humbling <laughs> to be wrong and um, it, it hurts to do this work and go, oh, the thing that I thought was going to be there isn't there. But it's so like that. That's I like it's actually kind of the best outcomes to have because when you disprove something, you can move on to the next thing. Like that, you can sort of move that out of the way and and move on to the next thing. Whereas if you show something, there could be lots of reasons why you get that result and you still ha you have to keep sort of following it. Whereas you, we, there's some things that you can just kind of rule out or you can say like, all right, we don't have to focus on this so strongly. Um, but it's also hard to spend three years of your life and go, oh, that was not what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, it's devastating. <laughs> yeah. Um, but oh yeah, it was really, really interesting research. And I don't, I've, I'm, I've got one more lot of data to collect and then I'm going to be writing everything up and hopefully have lots of, really interesting papers coming out. So the thing that I'm really interested in is whether behaviours, so coping strategies or things that we do in between sounds with misophonia, whether that influences the trajectory of misophonia symptoms. So if these are really helpful and healthy coping strategies, then theoretically the more you do them, the less intense your misophonia should be. If they're more like what we call safety-seeking behaviours, which is a key feature of a lot of anxiety disorders and OCD, then we would expect that the more you do those behaviours, the worse the symptoms would get over time or the more strongly you would believe your fears about um, what could happen as a result because we know that behaviour can also reinforce fears. So that's sort of what I'm testing. And I, I'm 
about to collect the last lot of data for that. So I've, I've followed up people from two and a half years ago. I followed them up like two years later and then and now I'm about to collect six months later so I can see th- the things that changed from two and a half years ago to two years ago, does that then influence what happens in the next six months after that? So if someone does more and more of those coping strategies in that two years, then what's the pattern of their misophonia symptoms and their feared consequences following that? And I don't have that data yet, but I'm very excited to see what it shows. I bet. That sounds amazing. And so is that, just to clarify, is that without intervention or guidance, that's their own coping strategies that they happen to use to see that trajectory? Absolutely. So that's actually a general population sample. So some people within that have misophonia, a lot of them don't and and it's looking at just sort of patterns in the general population which includes people with misophonia and then in the final study I'm going to compare that I'm going to do another sample of people just who identifies having misophonia and do some comparisons as well but this was allowing for the possibility that um, people in the general population if they're doing if they sort of tend to avoid sounds even if it's not that bad for them does that then make them more tuned in and more averse to sounds or the other way around if people have really strong aversion to sounds and they start doing things to cope with that does that actually improve things for them um yeah yeah that's I'm very much looking forward to reading this work (laughs) so I can't wait till that comes on that sounds amazing um that's also really interesting to hear how you kind of got onto this path of working out um kind of things that can help as well and that fully came from you and I guess obviously your expertise as being a a psychologist and knowing kind of how different strategies to be able to help that it sounds like you use this kind of I guess combination of like desensitization stuff as well as like CBT type thing well I feel like I should clarify that because desensitization is a, it's a bit of a, a hot topic in misophonia. So the idea, because when we, when we talk about desensitization in um, terms of like phobias and anxiety, what that refers to is that the thing that you're afraid of or averse to, if you just spend more time with that thing in a sort of safe and controlled environment, then you're emotional reaction should come down you should become less averse to that thing over time so that's habituation so that's the theory behind graded exposure which is just that you increasingly get exposed to a particular aversion and the aversion should come down that we should get used to it if something's not actually harmful but it feels in our body like it's harmful then the more we spend time with it the less harmful it feels but with misophonia that may be true for some people but it as a general trend, that's not looking to be the case. And um, particularly in terms of adapting or habituating to sounds specifically. So what we're doing is sort of more working on the layers around the sounds. So if um, it feels in your body like this, someone making this sound is a personal violation to you, or it feels like they're doing it deliberately to harm you, even if you know that they're not, we might we can sort of remove that layer but that doesn't mean that the sound won't be annoying and it doesn't mean that you will get used to the sound of eating so it might be you can remove those layers so you no longer get this like really angry response or a fight or flight reaction but you might still not be able to ignore the sound of eating you wouldn't be able to relax or um, concentrate if you could hear these sounds but you no longer get this intense 
reaction. And that theory has come from research with autistic people and some other conditions where that's a part of the experience is that the brain doesn't really habituate to certain sensory experiences and that's been tested experimentally that it, that it's not necessarily that the brain detects these sounds more readily but that they don't the brain ne- doesn't really get used to them so it's like you're hearing or experiencing that sensory information for the first time over and over and over again and what the brain's meant to do when there's repetitive sensory information is go oh that's the same thing that there's nothing to see here I can just ignore that now and so most people's brains will just eventually tune it out if it's not actually a th- sign of threat or danger but for some people and autistic people is one category ADHD can be another category the brain just doesn't do that and that's just a different way in in functioning and I think it's a really normal part of natural variation that some people in the group for group survival some people don't tune out things that could later emerge to be a sign of threat so in the book I talk about that being like the meerkat cycle that's the the, you're the the meerkat on top of the hill whose job it is is not to ignore potential signs of threat and you don't need to signal to the rest of the group that there's danger you just need to keep an eye on that danger and if it then emerges that it is a threat so that rustling in the grass turns out to be a predator then you'll signal to the group but in humans like again I think it's really normal and healthy that some people for group survival historically there would have been people who would have heard the sound of um, scratching outside the cave and they've gone, okay, I'm just going to keep listening to that while so the rest of the group can get on with what they need to do and I'll be the one who will notice any changes in that sound, will detect, will pick up signs of change which could be an indication that something's getting nearer or that something's becoming more threatening. And you can see that happen in in individuals without misophonia or any kind of sensory sensitivity if you're walking by yourself late at night there might be traffic noise but you can still tune into footsteps and the footsteps might be quieter than the traffic noise but your brain is capable of tuning into repetitive sounds that could be a sign of potential danger the question is how that extends to eating sounds which there's one theory that if you're eating loudly and with your mouth open that um spit contains pathogens so that could be a way of transmitting disease so that's one theory that sort of historically that would be why that was a problem Um, but there seems to be a more social element to it so there's an idea of like what people should do and how comfortable people should work to how people should work together to make environments more comfortable and that's not a pleasant sound to listen to and therefore the threat is not necessarily a threat from disease, but a threat, a, a social threat, like this person doesn't follow the rules. So maybe I just need to keep an eye on this person because what other rules might they not care about? And in the same way, I think the example of the towel before, but also it could be some people get really like disproportionately angry about people having their feet on the seats on the train, for example. <laughs> it's the same sort of principle. It's like you're breaking the rules and therefore I don't know what else you might be capable of. Mm. And so that then becomes a social threat. So mere, uh, 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 like inner meerkats are tuned into potential sort of physical danger, but also potential social danger. And the problem being that they tune into it, we tune into it when there is no danger, there is no violation, 
and sometimes there is and therefore it's actually a signal of something that is happening so some people have said that for example in their workplace people once they hear someone has misophonia they start making the sounds deliberately to torment them which is bullying and therefore that is a violation and that is something that we should be tuned into because Mm. that tells us something about that person about their character about what they're capable of so it's not that it's wrong, it's that in some cases it applies and in some cases it doesn't. And the problem with misophonia is that it doesn't distinguish between those types mm. of situations. So it can feel like your very loving, caring parent is doesn't care about you because they're making this sound. And actually the, it, it's just not in their head that at that moment that this sound is a problem for you. Or maybe I've discovered that one of my kids, just the mechanics of their mouth they just can't eat very comfortably with their mouth closed and it took a long time to discover that because of me just going oh just remember to eat with your mouth closed and actually they can't without a lot of discomfort and without having to focus on it and so then they can't enjoy the food because they're concentrating on the mechanics of their mouth which is not a very pleasant eating experience um Again, I've talked for so long that I've forgotten. <laughs> no, no, it's absolutely fine. That's great. I, I could honestly just let you carry on talking. It's so interesting. Um, no, I think that's really helpful also to clarify that kind of those similarities, I guess, between um, other sensory processing differences that we know of across like autism, ADHD and stuff like that. And also the same kind of thinking about it in a similar approach to the way that you might support or intervene with uh, to support um, misophonia in that it's these things are going to happen anyway and that is the way someone's brain is potentially wired that's where that's, we started yeah. I was saying it's not desensitization okay it's no. Not. no no which is good and it's helpful yep. to know and clarify that distinction because I think that because we get a similar th- view in um, the autistic research autism research realm is where people think oh we'll just basically go through the desensitization process you'll stop being responsive to hyper responsive to sound and then everybody will be happy and I I think it's really helpful to know that the point at which you would be potentially targeting to support people is that emotional behavioral response so it doesn't end up in these ruining relationships or causing anxiety or these kinds of things is that is that that's what I've taken yes. from what you've said yeah that's that's a very much more succinct <laughs> summary of what I just said yes absolutely yeah and that and the comparison with autism is really helpful there because it's, it's this the same idea is like the process as a therapist working with someone has to be um that there are some fundamental differences here and that's fine. Like not everyone has to be able to tune out these sounds. Like that that's okay that that's how your brain works. And a therapist has to approach it that way and say, okay, well, what, what can I help with? And if someone, so I'm really, really interested in past experiences and how that influences reactions. And I actually read about that in the context of autism because I read an idea that if someone um, at school frequently experience sensory meltdowns in a really loud, chaotic, unpredictable environment, maybe where other awful stuff was happening as well, like bullying and stuff is becomes associated with those sensory experiences. When that person is then in a similar loud, chaotic, 
sensory environment it's not just the overwhelm of the sensory information although that is also there but it it can also be you are then re-experiencing some of those childhood memories and it be, it's become attached to other traumatic experiences or just like experiences where your needs weren't met or um, you weren't listened to or cared for and so though those emotional experiences are now part of the sensory experience so it's not just the sensory experience it's all of that stuff that is now attached to that sensory experience and that's not the case with everyone so you can't approach everyone as if like oh we've just mm. got to repair these early memories but when we do that with people with misophonia we sort of start with a current experience where they consider their reaction to be disproportionate to what is actually happening in the moment if we bring those emotions to the surface we can do an, a technique called memory uh, emotion bridging where we tr- sort of travel through the emotion to early memories that are associated with those emotions and with misophonia almost everyone we it takes it they sort of they when they let their mind float back through those emotions it, it comes to a particular memory and that memory is often a time where there was a particular need emotional need that wasn't being met and sometimes it's just that they had a misophonia reaction and no one knew what that was and so they were laughed at or criticized or told to just ignore it or told they were too sensitive and so then that experience of being criticized or not listened to or mocked then forms part of their current emotional experience so they might feel a sense of humiliation when someone's making a sound at the dinner table even though there's nothing happening that would explain that in that moment but it's because their whole body has stored this memory of associating eating sounds with an experience of being invalidated or humiliated and so if we can update those memories because those memories our memories update when we get receive new information in the context of a memory we actually update those memories they're not frozen in time so if we think back to a childhood experience um we can think of it from the context of where we're at now. So an experience of bullying, for example, at the time may have been a really scary experience, but when you reflect on it as an adult, you might feel more anger towards the bully or even some compassion either towards yourself or possibly compassion towards the bully because you may come to understand that people who are bullies in school often have their own stuff going on. So you're able to reframe that memory based on what you've learned since then but if that memory got frozen in time and you haven't revisited it to update it or it was too painful or distressing to revisit it then that memory never gets updated and it can influence your current reactions so what we do is we deliberately visit that memory in a really safe and contained way so that it can be updated and say okay you as a kid no one knew you had misophonia what you needed right then was someone to say oh this is this is misophonia, This your brain just reacts a little bit differently to sounds, it's fine, you're not crazy, you're not too sensitive, you just react differently to sounds and that's okay. And by integrating that information that wasn't available at the time, that memory stops becoming so um, influential over the current experience of misophonia so, so that you don't sort of carry those old experiences with you in these current reactions so that's one of the techniques we use in therapy it's one of the techniques I describe in the book because there's, there's a, a, if it's not a too traumatic of a memory there are ways that you can do that gently for yourself just to sort of revisit some of those me- 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 bleh, revisit some of those memories maybe update them either just through 
telling yourself the story of what you wished you'd had known or experienced at the time or creating a piece of art that kind of reflects what you now know that you didn't know at the time or that meets those needs that weren't met at the time. And you can do that in a way that can then influence your current reactions. Yeah, no, I love that approach. I think that's really nice way of kind of reframing the narrative and integrating that kind of self-compassion in there that you're (laughs) basically you're not a problem there's just yeah there's some challenges that you've gone through and people weren't very kind to you it's a really nice way to reframe that narrative for people yeah and for me that also involved reframing other people's reactions as once I'd sort of worked on my own reactions I was then able to look at their reactions and, and also feel a little bit of compassion to them like they didn't understand what was going on they couldn't relate to my reactions and so to them it did look like I was upset for no reason or being irrational or whatever the interpretation was from them also kind of makes sense because they also didn't have the information that they needed so while they didn't provide me with what I needed in that moment that's also not their fault because they didn't have the information that needed to be able to do that yeah that makes sense that's really yeah nice way of yeah being able to look at those situations differently and everybody improve understanding I guess between everybody but it's obviously the first step of being able to actually recognize what's going on for you because I can imagine there's a really tough time where you just have these emotional responses and you and them <laughs> people around you don't have no idea kind of what's going on other than everyone's just unhappy about this so yeah, I, yeah. it's nice to I guess have more awareness now about what misophonia is how that looks and be able to talk about it more openly so people can really kind of recognize that in themselves um so if there are obviously people who might be listening to this who go aha this is really resonating with me um obviously your your book gives firstly I absolutely love the meerkats and zombies (laughs) (laughs) I wrote I looked at it I was like cats and zombies and I couldn't possibly think where that was gonna go (laughs) then I started reading it I was like oh no actually those analogies work perfectly and I love you described the meerkats thing a minute ago um but obviously like your book gives people a really good understanding about what might be happening but it also gives a lot of quite in-depth like self um guided I guess like therapeutic (laughs) interventions so you know you can go through yourself and I guess go through is it similar to going through that process that you took yourself through initially to be able to not have those emotional responses exactly yeah so I've tried everything in the book myself I'm aware that something like not all of them worked in any way for me some of them I will never do again but some of them did help and everything in there has helped somebody so it it made it into the book because somebody found it helpful and therefore part of the process is actually work jumping around through the book and thinking like does this resonate with me right now am I willing to try this right now is this safe for me to try this right now some people will find that some parts they can do right now other parts they might leave for later other parts they might never try other parts might need to be done alongside a therapist and I've had people contacting me saying that the therapists have bought the book and they're working through it together and that they found that really helpful so for people with more severe misophonia that's probably more the direction that the book would take them is that that it could be taken to a therapist and say, oh, I, I res- resonate with these things but it doesn't feel safe or okay to work on this on my own so they could do that alongside 
a therapist to help. But also a lot of people with misophonia, I think it's not so severe that it couldn't be worked on on their own or with the support of a friend or a family member. But for a long time, we just didn't have the information. So this book is just all the information. And and it's like, I think of this as like a snapshot in time of what I currently understand about misophonia and what might help for misophonia. I'm sure it will change. I'm sure there will be multiple editions because we are learning so much as we go with misophonia. But this is just my current theory on some of the things that might be part of misophonia and some of the things that might help. And everyone's experience is different and unique based on their own experiences, their personality, the things that they are willing to try, the way that they learn. And that's why there's just so many different ideas in there to try because there's there's no one strategy that's going to work for everyone with misophonia. Mm. And I love that about the book is like you, you do get that sense that you can kind of have that deep dive of like understanding what might be going on. And then feeling like you, there are different kind of options <laughs> and things you can do and being able to kind of look through and be like, oh, yeah, that kind of is something that I would you know, feel like I'm ready to give it a go. And, um, yeah, I think it's it really accessible as well, I think, for people who maybe, I mean, to be honest, it's just fascinating anyway, even if you don't have a spender, I would encourage people to read it because, as you said, like being able to understand what's going on for somebody and, you know, maybe knowing that what somebody might actually be experiencing from that and then not making horrible chewing mouth sounds around them to <laughs> aggravate well, them would be lovely. <laughs> um, one of the things that I did when I was writing the book is that I got people who had had, not people with misophonia, people with other things that they'd been through CBT for but had had a bad experience, that they'd felt shamed by the process or gaslit or that they just thought this just doesn't work and I got them to read it and I tweaked it and tried to make CBT feel a bit more like a compassionate thing and a validating thing that I think that there are often steps missing in CBT and I'm not saying that CBT is for everyone because I know that it's not but one of the things I tried to do is make it a, a kinder thing than it can sometimes come across as um, especially in books it can sort of seem like oh you're thinking about this wrong and therefore you need to change your thinking and I don't think that's the case at all I think that our experiences sort of tell our body what feels true in the moment and sometimes we rationally can see that something is different sometimes we can't but we need to first like recognize oh this makes sense that I feel this way and do I want to try anything different? And if I don't want to try anything different, then that's fine. It doesn't matter. Like you just keep going the way that you're going. But but I got people who'd had those bad experiences with CBT to read it and give feedback so that it wouldn't come across that way. And someone else that I spoke to who doesn't have misophonia, who is more in the sort of realm of anxiety disorder, said that, he, that hearing about all of those strategies and the approach to it that I take in the book you could easily apply that to other things that you may have had a bad experience with CBT before but it it might just be that it needs to be framed differently or approached differently so a lot of the techniques whilst they're very much described in the context of misophonia they're things that can help with other problems too and especially where there's this element of um there's a just a difference in processing or a difference in past experiences that mean that you experience the world differently and there are things that you would like to change. And when those two things go side by side, you have to 
work out how you approach change, which this is in the context of misophonia, but the se- it's the same process for other things. So it could be things like chronic pain or um, I had a, a colleague talk about that they thought it could be helpful for long COVID, for example, or chronic fatigue, that it sort of helps to take that frame of reference that there are some things that just are the way they are and there's all these layers around that and the layers are the bits that we want to work on for change. Mm, yeah, I really love that. And I, I definitely, I hear a lot kind of in my realm of challenges with cbt where it's tried to take the you know traditional this is what we use for anxiety and blanket that across people who have processing differences and stuff like that where it's kind of not adapted or framed in the right way and it's kind of a oh we'll just do this and you know for example you'll we'll try and make sure that I don't know, certain environments aren't doing this to you. And we're like, actually, the problem isn't you, the problem's the environment. So yeah. there's no point in giving you CBT for that. But there are certain things like, you know, I think the examples you've given related to misophonia around um, your children eating in a certain way and things like that, where you're literally like, well, I don't, they can't change or I don't want them to change. And actually they're not doing anything that's harmful to me or, or trying to harm me. And I would like to be able to see if I can adapt my emotional response so I'm not getting so distressed by this and causing challenges I guess like and in a very compassionate way is like lovely because it's if that's something you personally want to really work on that you think is something that is something you can do then I think that is the way from my view that CBT and things like that should be used not in a yeah we're just gonna fix you even though it's not a you (laughs) problem (laughs) yeah yeah and and it's really like it's kind of insulting the idea that the therapist has the tools and we are going to bestow the tools upon you and actually most people have the tools it's just that for whatever reason this experience is too intense to be able to apply the tools and so and for misophonia that's what I'm discovering more and more is that it's not that people are bad at dealing with their emotions or get uh, get more angry at people than other people it's that in misophonia specific contexts that happens and therefore that's the bit that we need to work on with the people don't need to be treated as if they can't handle their emotions it's like oh no it's just that your emotions are too intense in this moment and therefore you can't handle it and that makes perfect sense and we wouldn't expect you to so let's work on making those emotions less intense rather than trying to teach you strategies to be less emotional which is not very helpful in that situation and I think for me having a family has really helped me to think about that a bit more broadly and to think about competing needs within a a unit. And so like my husband um, is quite hyperactive, has needs to fidget a lot. And that's just part of like what his body needs to do. And I get really annoyed by being able to see repetitive movements. And so we have to work out strategies. That means that he can fidget if he needs to. And I don't have to look at it if I need not to. Um, I've got a kid who's a wheelchair user a lot of the time and so often we have to travel in a particular part of the train but I've got another kid who doesn't like things that aren't going to plan and doesn't like sort of loud sensory experiences but we can't just move on the train because we've got a wheelchair and so at any given moment we're we're mixing a whole bunch of competing different needs and we have to decide in that moment which one to prioritize and then kind of comfort the ones that can't be met in that need and find alternatives to that um so sort of traveling like when we travel into london it's a bit of a nightmare because any change of if we suddenly oh we have to go to the other end of the train and then the kid who doesn't like things to be changed is like oh but we were going to go in here you said we were going to go in here like why are we why are we 
going that way <laughs> why are we getting the bus now I thought we were getting the train um and you just you just can't meet all of those needs all of the time so that is again that's been a really humbling experience for me to recognize that this isn't just about my needs um that sometimes I'm gonna have to suffer through someone eating a packet of crisps because we're having to sit in the wheelchair space and that's just how it has to be I can't I can't just meet my own needs yeah, no, it sounds like it sounds like you've got a lot of compromising on your on needs in your family, but it, it it sounds like there's also a lot of understanding and, as you said, being able to kind of make sure that everyone gets their needs met to the best of their abilities. There, so especially when you're working on who, it, yeah, when you've got, I don't like sound, I need to fidget and make a bit of sound. It's like, <laughs> yeah, there's there's been some like pillow barriers between me and my husband to stop me having to look at him, like tapping his leg or something while we're trying to watch a film together. <laughs> yeah, and I think for people with misophonia, there's there's because you're trying to meet your own needs and often your needs haven't been met by other people. So the instinct is like, people don't need to do that. They don't need to eat with their mouth open. They don't need to fidget. And, and actually change is really hard. Any kind of habit change is really hard. So even though, yes, people, some people technically could eat with their mouth closed. If they weren't taught to do that, if they didn't learn to do that, changing that requires a conscious thought process the entire time that you're doing it. You can't just change that. You might be able to temporarily change it in one particular meal or for a moment. But one of the um, examples I used working with a patient was like, oh, well, imagine someone said to you, oh, it's making me a bit bit nauseous watching you walk that way. Could you just stick your arm out to the side? I think I'll feel less nauseous if you could walk with your arm out to the side. And so we started walking and they put their arm out to the side. And then, of course, once we started talking, their arm dropped back down because to to walk differently requires a conscious thought process. And we can't, we, we don't have enough cognitive resources to be able to have a conversation, a meaningful conversation, pay attention and do this new thing. So if you're asking someone to change a behavior that is completely habitual to them, that's going to take a lot of work and that might not be worth it for them, even though Mm. it's causing distress for you, because that's actually quite a difficult process for them. And so it's also Mm. just, yeah, understanding a bit about learning and habit and all of that stuff Mm. and being compassionate in both directions so the person who's making the sound can say okay well in that case I won't be offended if you have to leave the table because actually that's too big of a change for me to be able to learn how to eat quietly mm. for example yeah there's so many interrelational components that I make sense but it's interesting to be able to think more about it from both sides of that and actually like how you can work together and come up with something that everybody's comfortable not just being like I have this challenge you need to be different (laughs) otherwise yeah I'm out (laughs) I usually tell people don't try and do that in the moment because we're not actually very good at compromise in the moment so Mm. if it's if it's something that's happening now and only now and it's only going to be happening in this moment do whatever you need to do like just step away bite your tongue sit on your hands ask them as politely as you can but if it's something that's a recurring pattern then that conversation very much needs to happen outside of heightened emotion so that you can both see each other's perspective about what your competing needs are and what it would take to change to be able to meet the other person's need and that can't be done in a state of heightened emotion it just our brains just aren't capable of doing that 
mm. thought process because when we're in a state of heightened emotion we're more focused on protecting ourselves and so we're not going to be able to have access to the other person's needs in that moment mm. Yeah, no, that's really, I think that's so, I think that could be a good place <laughs> for us to start rounding up because I feel like we've definitely talked for quite a while now and um, all fascinated. I'm sure we should keep keep talking and I definitely have way more questions. <laughs> I did but, warn you that I could talk about this for literally for hours. <laughs> that's great. And yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I feel like I have really, I mean, especially as somebody who researches sensory experiences a lot, I have learned a huge amount in our conversation. So thank you so much for that but I always end on the same question to all my guests um just because why not um so I am asking all my guests if you could change one thing to make the world a more neurodivergent friendly place for yourself in your case misophonia friendly place for yourself what would that be okay I've I've thought a lot about this (laughs) the one thing that bothers me the most people using their phone on loudspeaker in public and especially watching like I was was just in the hospital with one of my kids they just had surgery it was like a really very stressful and emotional time unfortunately we were put on the teenage ward and my kid is not a teenager so there (laughs) there were three teenagers and three parents of teenagers all of whom were using their phones on loudspeaker several of them on reels or TikTok or something. So I just kept hearing this like changing from one video to the next. Yeah. So I'm sure that this would then go to not meet somebody else's need, but if phones could just not have a loudspeaker option, that would (laughs) change my life. (laughs) Also, yeah, I... I have to support that fully. I think that gets a big <laughs> seal of approval from me. Also, do people not know headphones exist? <laughs> I know. Like, I don't understand what is going on. And I feel like this has changed more since COVID. And so I don't know if it's like a habit change that people got used to just being able to use their phone however they wanted because they weren't around other people for a long time. Or if it's that during that time, everyone got so angry at the fact that they were controlled and now everyone's just going, I'm just going to do what I want. I don't care about other people anymore. So I don't know if people don't realise the impact it has on other people. They don't realise what it sounds like to other people or maybe it just doesn't bother them and so it doesn't occur to them that it bothers other people. But there could be some kind of mandate about either loudspeaker doesn't exist or some kind of monitoring of headphone use in public places or some kind of um, monitor on quiet carriages on trains. So if you go to an environment that is meant to be quiet, that someone is in charge of that and (laughs) making sure that people stick to that rule because that to me is the worst when someone is in an environment where it's not acceptable. Like it's it's mm. it's literally on the windows. This is a quiet <laughs> carriage. Don't use your phone on loudspeaker. And that flagrant disregard for the rules. And you go in there expecting it to be quiet because it's called the quiet carriage. So it's even more of a violation. So mm. no loudspeaker and better monitoring of quiet carriages. That's great. I'll put in a word, see if I can. <laughs> I'm, cast, I'm like, that out. we're getting a solid list going now. So um, I will put in our demands. 
<laughs> to whoever is in charge. <laughs> well, you. thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it's been a really fascinating conversation. Um, and I, just to everybody, make sure you check out um, Jane's socials and also your book, Sounds Like Misophonia. Um, and I will link all of those in the show notes um, for everybody. So thanks so much and goodbye. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow or subscribe. You can also find the show on Instagram at neurospicy.podcast.